0: Getting recommendations from your friends for that perfect diet might be a big waste of time. The real answer is already within you. Your genes. What are the best foods based on your DNA? What foods have the nutrients that you need? How quickly do you metabolize caffeine and alcohol? Don't guess. Use the code RJYOUNG for $20 off a Palette. DNA kit to find out how to eat for your genes. What's up, folks? It's R.J. Young. I am not on a step mill. Welcome to the number one ranked show. And if you are here, please take some time to leave us a five star review and let me know what you like, what you don't like about the show. Today, I want to talk about the Heisman Trophy and why I don't think it's a good predictor of great college football players. And then I want to talk to you about what I believe or who I should, who I believe I should say are the greatest college football players of all time. And we're going to have a little conversation about the college football playoffs, likely expansion, what that number is probably going to be and what you think it should be. And I'm excited to hear what you think, but first let's talk about this Heisman trophy thing for just a second here. All right. So the Heisman trophy is kind of trash. In fact, It's downright sucks when talking about the greatest college football players of all time. For example, there's this player. He holds the third best winning percentage by a starting quarterback with at least 30 career starts since the Division I split in 1978. He's second only to the Miami Hurricanes quarterback, Ken Dorsey, in winning percentage. He left his school as the winningest starting quarterback in its history, too. He completed 66.6% of his passes, is of gonna beat anybody for more than ten thousand yards with ninety touchdowns and seventeen interceptions for a passing efficiency rating of one sixty four point three. Means he also broke his conference's record once held by a Heisman winner for passing efficiency, and is the first starting quarterback in his league's history to win three consecutive ACC titles. He ended his career undefeated as a starter in the regular season across both high school and college. He made five career college football playoff starts, setting the record for the most at one school. He became the first true freshman quarterback to lead his team to a national title in 30 years. Also, as a true freshman, he started the final 11 games of 2018. His Clemson Tigers became the first major college football team in the modern era to go 15 and 0, including a 44 to 16 stomping of Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson tie. That player who did all of that and didn't win the Heisman is Trevor Lawrence. And I can just stick with Clemson here and tell you about the first 4,000 yard, 1,000 yard dude in the 152 year history of the sport. He also whooped Nick Saban's Alabama in the national championship. He threw for 405 yards with five total touchdowns in winning time. In 2015, he put up over 5,200 total yards of offense with 47 total touchdowns. His name is Deshaun Watson. And here's one more. This dude broke multiple national college football records while rushing for 1,925 yards in one season while leading the country in rush attempts with a gaudy 339. He ran for over 100 yards against eight different opponents. He was the engine for the team's undefeated run in 2004's regular season, taking the squad to the national title game. In the Heisman voting for the best season of his life, Adrian Peterson finished second to USC's Matt Leinert, the quarterback of the team that beat his in the national championship. And if he played during the playoff era instead of the BCS one, there's no doubt that Adrian Peterson would have rushed for 2,000 yards in 2004. Speaking of 2,000-yard rushers, did you know there have been 35 of those in the history of the sport? You know how many have won the Heisman? Let's uh, tick off the names right quick. Tony Dorsett in 1976, Charles White in 1979, Marks Allen in 1981. Mike Rozier in 1983, Rashaan Salam in 1994, Barry Sanders in 1988, Ricky Williams in 1998, and Ron Dane in 1999. And then, oh yeah, Derrick Henry in 2015. That's nine. Nine out of 35. And this is for a trophy dominated by running backs and quarterbacks. Matter of fact, just one defensive player ever has won the Heisman. It's Charles Woodson. And Woodson had to play both ways to do it. Only seven players who did not play in an offensive backfield, that is quarterback, running back, halfback, fullback, have won the award. Larry Kelly in 1936, Leon Hart in 1949, Johnny Rogers in 1972, Tim Brown in 1987, Desmond Howard in 1991, Woodson in 97, and Devontae Smith in 2020. Any college football award that professes to pick the best player in the game annually and can't come up with one more than one defensive winner since it began in 1935, cannot be trusted. But the most egregious reason the Heisman Trophy is awful at annually picking the best player in the sport, but especially of all time, is segregation. Many people talk about the modern era as beginning post-World War II. I don't consider that the modern era. I consider the modern era beginning post-integration, when most predominantly white universities began fielding Black players around about 1970. And while Syracuse running back Ernie Davis became the first Black Heisman winner in 1961, even playing some linebacker that year, he's nowhere near the top 10 players ever in the sport. This is especially true when you consider another Syracuse running back. Jim Brown accounted for 1,000 yards from scrimmage and averaged better than six yards per clip in 1956. And he played just eight games that season. The Orangeman finished seven and one with a cotton bowl berth, but he finished fifth, all five of my fingers in the Heisman voting that year. The man voters gave the award to was Paul Horning. He somehow won a Heisman while throwing 13 interceptions and just three touchdowns while quarterback in a Notre Dame team that finished two and eight. So Miss me with whether or not or even how many Heisman trophies a player has won, and especially when talking about the greatest players ever. Any award that could give Paul Horning the trophy in 1956 and couldn't crown the likes of Jim Brown, let alone acknowledge HBCUs, or acts as if defensive players and offensive linemen cannot be the best players in the sport, needs to be destroyed and rebuilt into one that does. About 900 people vote on the Heisman each year. Most of those are media members. The rest are former winners. This is fine. I have no problem with this. What's not is leaving it up to them to rank their top three choices for the best player in the country. Expecting these men, many of whom cover the sport, to stand in the idea that Chase Young with his 21 tackles for loss and 16 and a half sacks was a better football player than Joe Burrow and his 5,600 yards and 60 touchdowns in 2019, or that North Carolina cornerback, Dre Bly with his 11 interceptions in one friggin' year was a better football player than 96 Heisman winner, Danny Werfel, who threw for 3,600 yards, 39 TDs and 13 picks only works. If the apparatus allows for such a thing to not look untoward, unpopular or irregular, even to some people profane, you have to build for the underrepresented population in a system designed for the rich quarterbacks and running backs here to get richer. A way to do this is to reevaluate how those players are selected to be on the ballot. The player with the most tackles is arguably the most important player with, uh, excuse me, is as important as the most important player with the most important completions. I should say the most completions, right? I'm saying a linebacker is better is just as, valuable as a quarterback, basically, right? Defensive players and offensive linemen need to be included in the conversation as well, all the way up to the finalists. Pene Sewell was really, really good in 2019. And capping the number of quarterbacks and running backs selected can help ensure we see more equitable treatment across what we continue to call the ultimate team game. So rather than asking these folks to list their three best players, give categories for these things so that at the very least, we do see an offensive lineman, a defensive lineman, a linebacker, a safety, a cornerback mentioned among the top 10 vote getters. When we talk about the best players in the sport annually, and then let's talk about it being a football award and not a quarterback or running back award. Okay. Now we're going to get to the part where you start yelling at me. I'm kidding sort of, because I want to talk about who I believe are the 10 best college football players, of all time. And one of the things that really irritates many of us about these sorts of lists is what criteria are you using, right? And I think that's very important to point out. So let's start with this. Are you the best player on your team? Like it, it sounds simple, but you would be amazed at how difficult that question can sometimes be. For instance, 2020 Alabama has Mac Jones, Najee Harris, Devontae Smith, and Jalen Waddell, right? And those are just four of those dudes. Which one is the best player, right? The Heisman would tell you it's Devontae Smith. I would tell you it was Jaden Waddle. Somebody watching running backs probably tell you Najee Harris was the best. And then, of course, there's Mac Jones, who was a first-round pick in the NFL draft. So it's not as simple, but it also factors in. And if you did more to carry a team, that matters too. And then what did you do in winning time? Okay, like if you're playing for a championship, did you show up with that clutch factor to take over the game That matters, right? Especially if we're going to talk about offensive players and how they can impact the game as opposed to defensive players and how they can impact the game, right? So I wanted to start there. So knowing that that is the criteria and knowing that that is what I really want to talk about, make sure I didn't miss any of the other criteria here. Oh yeah, one more, one mirror, one more. Did his team win the national titles on a team that wasn't full of studs, right? And you'll see how that is sort of loaded and baked in, but I think it matters, right? When we talk about Nick Saban in Alabama, we're usually talking about the most loaded team in college football at the time, right? It's also why we keep bagging on Texas and want them to be so good. It's because we look at the recruiting classes and we say, my goodness, man, y'all should be destroying people, including Oklahoma. And they just haven't lived up to those expectations, but we'll see what Sark does because The man has been on a tear here the last like five years, so I'm excited to see what Texas looks like. All right, let's start at number 10. It's a dude that I could not not put on the list, and if you know anything about me, you know that I was gritting my teeth while I was writing this down. As a matter of fact, I kept looking for reasons to drop him, and I couldn't. I would bounce it off of Producer Cat, and she'd be like, RJ, he kind of needs to be there, and I'd be like, yes, I know, but. Is there anybody else? No, there is nobody else. It has to be Tim Tebow right at number 10. Now for some of y'all, you're already thinking this list is already bonkers because you think that Tim Tebow is the greatest college football player of all time. I see your argument first and foremost. I want to acknowledge that because you're talking about a dude that was a three-time Heisman finalist who won two national championships. And this is the reason why he's on the list for me. He is the first guy that we know about, that we ever saw at this level, have 20 passing touchdowns and 20 rushing touchdowns in the same year. Before he had done it, we just didn't see it done. Of course, he's a two-time All-American who broke five NCAA records, 14 SEC records when that was still hard to do, and 28 Florida records, including career passing efficiency at 170.8, which you'll note is higher than Trevor Lawrence's career passing efficiency and right spoiler here, he ain't on the list, right? He also won the Davey O'Brien in 2007, the Maxwell Award in 2007. And yes, beat my Oklahoma Sooners 24 to 14. A bit more about Oklahoma and me here a little bit later on. But that team was so loaded, both offensively and defensively, that it's really difficult for me to say that he is one of the best, or not one of the best. The best player of all time because I look at some of those dudes that they had, right? Chris Rainey's a monster. You know, uh, Hernandez is a monster. Carlos Dundas was a monster. Like, it's just that team start the to top was just amazing to watch and amazing to see do what they know how to do, which is run roughshod over people, right? So that's number 10. At number nine, we have a man that is very close to my own heart, but also I think is the reason why we talk about Carson Wentz. And Trey Lance. And quite frankly, the reason those guys were drafted as highly as they were is Steve McNair, right? Aaron McNair changed the way that we view quarterback play coming out of the FCS, full stop. All right. So let's start with this. In 1994, he finished third in the Heisman voting at an FCS and an HBCU school. I told you, this award doesn't know if it's coming or going. Coming out of Mount Olive, Mississippi right? He engineered Alcorn State and the Braves to prominence, seldom seen post-integration at an HBCU, right? He left Alcorn with the FCF career record for passing yards with 14,496 and total yards with 16,823. The man was responsible for 152 touchdowns (laughs) over the course of his career, and 119 of those came through the air, and it wasn't like he's out there throwing to Jerry Rice, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say he was throwing the bums, but you ain't heard of most of them dudes that he was throwing the football too. And then at the time I'm living in Mississippi and my parents would take me up to Alcorn State to watch him play because he was that big a deal. And that's, you know, not a small thing, especially when you grow up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi and Southern Miss is the only team, right? You also got to factor in here that he was who he was back in high school. Like we had people that were really still trying to make Steve McNair play defensive back. And anybody that's seen Steve McNair move around knows that ain't no defensive back, right? It, he can, he's mobile, but he ain't Mike Vick, you know what I mean? Like he had to be out there actually doing some quarterbacking. And I really enjoy knowing that we can dig into the FCS and we can find not just talent, but top level talent. And I think we can do that because Steve McNair showed everybody you could do that post-integration, hence Trey Lance and Carson Wentz. All right. So at number eight, talk about a dude that is very close to my heart, right, very close to every Oklahoma fan's heart, Baker Mayfield, okay? Baker Mayfield is on this list because of what it took for him to be on this list. And by that I mean he walked on not once but twice. Walked on at Texas Tech, transfers to Oklahoma, walks on there, and beats out a quarterback that had just beaten Alabama – In the Sugar Bowl, as a matter of fact, Lincoln Riley was at East Carolina at the time, and he was trying to recruit Baker Mayfield away from Tech once he had decided to transfer to East Carolina. And Baker told him straight up, I'm going to Oklahoma. And he said, are you crazy? Trevor Knight just won the Sugar Bowl. He just beat Alabama. He's going to be the starter. What are you doing? He said, no, I'm going to go up to Oklahoma, and I'm going to go win that job. Man went up to Oklahoma, sight unseen. Bob didn't know he was coming, and said, I'm here to play football. And Bob Stoops looked around, said, "I right, cool. We got this dude, Trevor Knight, though. And then when, you know, Lincoln Riley joins up in 2015, and the dynamic duo that became Baker Mayfield and Lincoln Riley put Oklahoma back to where we expect Oklahoma to be, making college football playoffs, winning Big 12 championships, and he's a Heisman finalist before he was a Heisman winner, right? And this is the one of those ways, well one of those one of those years where yes, I think that the Heisman got it right, but it's also very cool that a walk-on could win the most prestigious award according to some in the sport. I don't think we're ever going to see that again, right? And then you know what it is, he becomes the number 1 overall pick for the Cleveland Browns and takes them to the playoffs for the first time in almost 30 years. I want to say it's 25 years the last time they had been to the playoffs. But it's also a guy that put Oklahoma on its back and carries our values. Like, I'm from here. I live here. It's my team. Right? And I don't see anything wrong with that. When people call me a homer, that's not the slur you think it is. Like, yes, of course. I am here because of this place. Because of how it raised me. Because of the hustle and the values that come with put your head down, go to work, be productive, right? If you believe in yourself, keep doing what you know how to do. And that was Baker through and through. The man did not change up once he got to Oklahoma. He did not change up once he became a Heisman finalist. He did not change up when he took Oklahoma to the college football playoff. He stayed the dude that he is. And that is the guy that we all came to love, right? I would be wildly dishonest to you if I didn't tell you that that is why I am here. Because that is Oklahoma. And if somebody tells you who the greatest quarterback is in Oklahoma history, they might actually say Kyler Murray. They might actually say Sam Bradford. And I have no truck with that. But if you're going to talk about the soul of Oklahoma, if you're going to talk about what we believe and who personifies our beliefs and how we go about living, it's going to be the dude with six on his chest. And that's why he's on this list. All right let's move on to number seven, right? Put these things down on the notepad and my goodness. So as a matter of fact, dude, like, oh, goodness me, like, I didn't really know that I was going to do this before I sat down to do this. But when you look at Dan Morgan, you got to think of the dude is one of the greatest college football players of all time. All right. So like, winning the Buckus award means you were the greatest linebacker of the of the year right the that is the heisman for the linebackers right there's a defensive player of the year award for both Ben Nerick and yeah the Bronco negoti the only dude to win all three in one year is Dan Morgan like Zayvon Collins had a chance to do it last year and I think y'all yeah, Rob like no disrespect to Jeremiah Jeremiah auso because that dude was an outstanding linebacker is an outstanding linebacker but Zayvon Collins fell just the Buckus Award of the trifecta. And so Dan Morgan keeps his claim. So in 2000, when he won it, right, and won it and won it, Buckus Bednarik, and Nagurski, he's also a first-team all He <laughs> He's a consensus first-team All-American. He's stupid. Named to 10 different squads and was a unanimous selection in the Big East back when Miami was still there for defensive player of the year. He was also the all-biggies first-team selection and excuse me, as, a, as a sophomore. But more than that, like, the dude had 532 tackles in four years. Like, that's 108 tackles each year on a loaded Miami team, I might add. He led the team in tackles in three out of four years. And in 2000, he had 90 solo tackles to go with 138 total tackles and 20 tackles in one game twice and at least 15 in six of those games. Of course, he had 21 against Virginia Tech in 1997 with 14 of those being solo tackles. And of course, he became a first round selection of Carolina Panthers, which basically means that the Carolina Panthers drafted two of the best linebackers ever to play college football in Dan Morgan and Luke Keekley right? Who just narrowly misses this list. But I think it speaks volumes that the guys that I thought about when I put together this list and I was like, man, who are the players? Luke Keekley and Dan Morgan came to my mind first. They just do, right? And that's before a guy like Dre Bly, who I mentioned in the monologue. Okay, next guy on the list comes out of an HBCU. And no, it is not Walter Payton. It's Jerry Rice, right? Coming out of Mississippi Valley State. My favorite, <laughs> I got two favorite anecdotes, I should say. The first one is Jerry Rice used to catch bricks from his daddy, to brush up on his receiving skills, bricks. You know how much confidence you gotta have to be catching bricks? Like, there are no mistakes there, man. Like, one mistake, is your skull, you're gone, right? And on top of that, like, his coach at the time claimed he could catch a BB in the dark, which I love, right? Like a BB shot in the dark. And when you look at what he was capable of doing and what he did, that, that makes a lot of sense. 1983, he caught 102 passes the most across all NCAA divisions. And in 1984, he set an FCS record for 112 catches with 1,847 yards receiving on the Satellite Express. Shout out Willie Todd. He also caught 27 touchdowns that year, the most across all divisions, and was voted an AP All-American. And again, the Heisman doesn't always know what it's doing here because that man finished ninth in Heisman voting. On a team that averaged 57 points a game, and won the SWAC title, right? They go nine and two that year. And we all know who Jerry Rice turns out to be, which is the greatest receiver of all time, which is just ridiculous, man. All right, next on the list, shout out to the SEC, but not in the way you think. Herschel Walker changes the way we thought about running backs, which I didn't think was possible. Because when I read about running backs before and after Herschel Walker, the idea that your guy could be a freshman and carry the load was not regular. Like he made it a thing for Trevor Lawrence to be the guy in 2018. Nobody started freshman, redshirt or otherwise, before old Vince said, I'm going to hand Herschel to Rock. Okay. It's been 40 years since Georgia has won a national title, right? But when the Bulldogs, had a babe to lead them, it was like Paul Bunyan's Blue Ox because this man carried the rock for 1,616 yards with 15 touchdowns in 1980. The Dogs finished 12-0. and 0, And then in winning time, in the Sugar Bowl, 1981, he rushed for 150 yards with two touchdowns, stopping a mud hole in Walk and walking dry in Notre Dame, 17-10. And, and he did that with a separated shoulder. Come on, man. And anybody that's seen Herschel Walker knows what it is. That man came out looking this way and has looked that way into his 50s, which is scary as all get out. When he left UGA, he left with a 33 and three record in the backfield in three years, 41 school records, 16 SEC records, and 11 NCAA records. Okay. Herschel Walker was that dude in Athens. All right. Next on the list. Nebraska has had a number of guys that I could have thought about, but the only one that I want to put on this list is Tommy Frazier because there were only two dudes that I loved as a child in college. One of them's Tommy Frazier. The other one's Charlie Ward. And I love Tommy Frazier because I didn't think that there was anything that dude couldn't do. Now, it turned out to be true, but the more I dug into him the more I just came to know that he was built for this like as a junior in 1994 well let me back up here let me go at this another way Nebraska played in two orange bowls before Tommy Frazier got a chance to start 92 93 they lost both of them in 94 he missed seven games of a 13 game season due to blood clots which is scary right many of y'all Oklahoma fans know about Jalen Redmond and what he has gone through to play football. He played the last six games, though, and led Tom Osborne and Nebraska to their first national title, to Tom Osborne's first national title, in the Orange Bowl, right? And then in 95, he did it again. Like, <laughs> Fraser the Huskers beat Steve Furrier's Florida, up one side and down the other, 62-24. to 24 in the Fiesta Bowl, under the circumstances, it is the worst loss of Steve Spurrier's illustrious career. And in that game, winning time, Tommy Frazier carries the rock 16 times for 199 yards alongside Lawrence Phillips, who had 25 rushes for 165 yards. And just to tell you how deep that squad was, Amon Green had nine carries for 68 yards, and Amon Green had the most rushing yards on that team. Like, it's one of the greatest teams of all time, and Tommy Frazier was the best player on it. He left Nebraska 33-3 and as a starter. I mean, in there, by the way, like, two years, goes 13-0, and 12-0, and that was a record in the Big Eight. And then, basically, to put an end to Nebraska's dominance in the Big Eight, they changed the rules once they got to the big 12 about how you could do partial scholarships. And then another note that I just learned, Nebraska had what were called County scholarships, which means they could extend scholarships to kids locally in the area to try to get them into school. Like Nebraska was doing everything they could to get dudes into Nebraska. And I really enjoy that. Right. I love that. All right. Number three on the list. Now we're getting into the nitty gritty. Okay. Okay. Got to be Vince Young because Vince Young is Texas football for me. Like, I know there are folks that genuinely believe that Ricky – my God, look at that, man. Look, look at this. Run in there, Oh, you Oh, my God, he got in there. Like, I just – like, he wasn't supposed to do that. Look at this. They have him dead. They have him dead. All you got to do is make the tackle. He broke you. Look, that was forty-one to thirty-eight in a game that I swore up and down USC was going to win. I didn't want them to win. I wanted that right there. And I'm not even a I'm not even a Texas fan, but it was the Big Twelve versus them dudes in USC, them dudes over in the Pac-12, Pete Carroll and the arch nemesis. And then you know what? It's like that, right? You end up rooting for your regional conference rather than rooting against your hated nemesis, because that's us, right? At some point, Texas had to play Oklahoma that year, all right? And you want to be able to say, if you lost, you lost to a national champ. But that USC team was also a juggernaut. Like, they were on a 34-game winning streak before Texas beat them in 2006 in the Rose Bowl. And if not for Vince Young, it don't happen. And when I say that Vince Young is Texas to me, that's my guy, right? Right? That is, when somebody talks to me about the University of Texas being good, I don't go to Colt McCoy. I don't go to Ricky Williams. I don't even go to Cedric Benson. I go straight to VY, okay? He won the last 20 games of his career at Texas. None more dramatic than that one (laughs) against USC 41-38. Just feels so good coming off my lips. He became the first player ever to throw for 3,000 yards and rush for 1,000 yards in one season and somehow finish runner-up to the Eisman Trophy, right? But won the Rose Bowl MVP, 192 yards on the ground, four touchdowns, 180 yards through the air. (laughs) Golly. In, (laughs) In their game against Michigan. One of the things I love most about Mac Brown's Texas, especially with Vince Young, is that, Mac did not try to outwit himself. When he had Ricky Williams, he handed Ricky the ball. When he had Vince Young, he said, hey, we're going to do whatever Vince needs us to do. That's what we're going to do, right? The bus can leave whenever the bus is going to leave. Till Vince gets there, we're not going anywhere, though. I love knowing that. And I also love that Vince Young is the reason Texas won its first national championship in 35 years. And probably the reason why, we expect Texas to be so much better because historically Texas ain't been that good. But when they had Vince Young, they were great. All right. Number two on the list, Reggie Bush. I, I Reggie's high school tape used to play in my high school library. Like we used to go and rig a computer so that it would pop up with YouTube and then he would be the, on the top of the playlist and he'd be like three videos into the playlist and we would just watch it on repeat. And if you watch other players, even today, right? The kiddos in their 20s or late teens, they even know who Reggie is, right? They know what that man was capable of. But on a team full of studs, full of just awesome players, Reggie was the greatest. There was nothing Reggie could not do with a football in his hands whether it was catching the ball out of backfield, whether it was breaking tackles, like at some point we got stupid enough to think that Lindale White was as important as Reggie Bush. And then Reggie Bush would take this punt return all the way back to that. Look like, at what are you doing? How does he do that? You got him dead to rights. He's a dead man. You know, he's a dead man. And all of a sudden he's looking back at you. Like my man is going straight through you. And I said, Oh, what is that? That's so disrespectful. That was so disrespectful. He he said skirt, and he stopped him straight up. I can't with this man. USC won 34 straight games, two national titles during Reggie Bush's three years there. He won the 2005 Heisman Trophy. I saw him with 1,740 yards, 19 touchdowns to reach the national championship in that game. Over 6,600 all-purpose yards and over 3,000 yards rushing at SC, one of the greatest of all time, my number two all time. And then at number one, Cam Newton. I, now let me, let me, let me make sure I go through this because I understand how you must feel about this. Cam Newton had the best individual season of any player in the history of the sport. Most people, not in Auburn, not in Mobile, can tell you who else was on that football team. Like they get to Michael Dyer and they stop because it was Deuce and Parks. Like I don't want to make it sound like the rest of them dudes were a bunch of rusty, uh, crusty sock puppets, but I do want to say if they did not have Cam Newton, we ain't talking about the twenty ten Auburn team. We're just not doing it. That man could do anything, anything on a football field. As a matter of fact. In 2010, he rushed for touchdowns, he passed for touchdowns, he caught a touchdown, and he made a tackle. Like I said, there's nothing he couldn't do on a football field. All right, let me start with this. Cam was at Florida, as many of you know. But Dan Mullen was stopping up and down, trying to convince Urban Meyer to start Cam Newton over Tim Tebow. That is how good he knew he was. And we all know Tim Tebow ends up being one of the greatest college football players of all time. Cam won a national title both in junior college and college. Now find me the list of dudes that have done that. At Blinn, he and the Buccaneers dropped 60 on Tyler Junior College. Cam was responsible for 503 of their 601 yards in that game. They hung 60, or excuse me, 60, they won, well, they, they hung 84 of Cisco College the same year. He can only accounted for 369 yards and, you know seven touchdowns in that game. And in the national title game, 2009, Blinn beat Fort Scott, who was 11-0 at the time, 31-26. So the Greyhounds knew what it was going to be with Cam when he ended up at Auburn. And at Auburn, again, the greatest season of all time, he brought the Tigers back from a 24-point deficit against Nick Saban's Alabama to win that game in the Iron Bowl, 28-27. to We call it the Cam back. They go 14 and 0, they win the national national title. Means there's only one team that beat Cam Newton in college and that was Navarro 23 to 20 in the last game of the regular season of his junior college career. So put that one in the bucket for the trivial pursuit. Means between November 1st, 2009 and September 10th, 2011, Cam Newton didn't lose a single game. Not one. And again, he went to Auburn. He went to Auburn. Okay. We ain't talking about Auburn being no blue blood. We're not doing it. Okay. And then there was this he fell just 73 total yards short of having a 3,000 yard and 1,500 yard season, right? 3,000 yards passing, 1,500 yards rushing. He accounted for 51 touchdowns and just seven interceptions in 2020. He rushed four past four, as I said, and caught a touchdown while recording a tackle. And again, the list of men who have done that is just show it to me. Just show it to me. I'll take it. I can't think of a player who was more important to his team. I can't think of a player who did more with less. I can't think of a player who had so much turmoil around him at the time. Remember. His daddy, Cecil, was trying to sell him out to the highest bidder, bidder, and he still was able to put together this season. The man got busted down, right, after he got trouble at Florida, transfers to Brenham, Texas. You don't even know where it is. Don't even act like you know where it is. Shows up there with a duffel bag, leads them to a national championship, goes to Auburn, leads them to a national championship. And then we know what it became with him in the NFL. I mean, he's a former MVP and one of the greats of all time and will be a Pro Football Hall of Famer there too. Cam is also the guy that I felt college football was going to become. Six foot five, 250 pounds. He was actually the Little League version of what you expect, right? I believe that your best athlete needs to have the ball most of the time. And that's what Albert did. That's what Gene Chizik did. And that's what Gus Malzahn did. They said, hey, we're going to give it to the six foot five, 250 dude, like like Mac Brown did, Vince Young. And we're going to say... What you want to do, big y'all, it's your team. Whatever you're going to do is what we're going to do. We're going to try to play enough defense to keep up with you. So those are my top 10 all-time college football players. Let me know what you think about this list. Tweet us at number one show. We're on IG at the number one show. I'm at RJ underscore young. Please try to give me a reason as to why you have dudes on your list and not just the dudes on your list. And whether or not you're just going to go with the same criteria that I use, because that matters to me as well. Okay, now we're on to the We Out Shares segment. I'm sorry for squeaking. That's one of the things that I do over here. Uh, apparently, I do not look the way that I sound, but y'all can't be perfect either. Now, I want to get into a question that we posed to you on the socials, which is what should be the right number of teams for the college football playoff. We're talking about this because news has surfaced that the college football playoff is looking to expand, or at least thinking about expanding to 12 teams. We'll talk about those here in a little bit, but that is the reason we're talking about it now. So in asking her to do this, I asked producer cat to pull some of the answers that she thought were good. I haven't seen them and I'm going to react to them. So producer cat, what do you got first? All right, this is from at Tacos and Therapy. I like eight teams, champions of each Power Five conference, two at large, and a group of five highest ranked. I don't hate it because it is not four. The problem that I see with it is that we are lifting up the Autonomous Five above everyone else, right? Now, making sure that the Autonomous Five each get a team in, that'd be the Power Five, I think it's good because I think they were stupid to put together a system in which one of them is always going to be left out. If they're the ones rigging this game, why don't you rig it for everybody? That that just it didn't feel like somebody had thought that through, notably Larry Scott. But I like the three at large bids, right? Because I want to see a group of five team get an opportunity to run the table. And I think it will happen sooner rather than later. But the main reason I don't like it is because there are 10 conferences. There are 10 leagues. I think each one should have a representative in the playoff, right? And we could talk about what that looks like a little bit later on, but that's, that's my reaction to that. I appreciate the comment tacos and therapy. We got to step. All right. This next one is from at cam Lodico. He wants 12. You get the power five champions and then seven more. So teams from other conferences would have a chance. Cam, I think, is on to what we're going to see from the college football playoff committee, right? Which is to say, yeah, they're, they're going to get their power five in, and then they're going to figure out how they want to do the other seven. I don't like the seven at larges though, because that means we're probably going to end up with eight SEC teams. <laughs> like, it's just the way that it is, because we all acknowledge that today, the SEC is the strongest conference in football, and there are 14 of those teams. And let's just go through the list, Right. Who are you going to probably not going to see a whole bunch of Vanderbilt, perhaps Kentucky, maybe Missouri, right? The Mississippi schools, depending on what happens in Arkansas, right? That's about it. Everybody else will see cycle through. And even Arkansas will be like, yo, RJ, when we had Bobby Petrino, we were rolling in like 2011. I know. And even Ole Miss and Mississippi State will be like, yo, we was right there not 10 years ago. And I'll say, I know. That is the reason why I think the at-large bids is a problem. My main issue with the at-larges and not making sure that those 10 teams from those 10 conferences are represented, is I don't trust the people in suits sitting in a boardroom picking people to put on in a playoff. I don't. I don't want to see it either. I don't think we should have to see it. I think the kids should surprise us and should tell us who should play based entirely on this college football playoff selection committee called the scoreboard. like. Why can't the scoreboard be the arbiter of who wins and who loses? Because that's what you're doing with the playoff. You're saying you're saying I don't care that Notre Dame got shell-shocked by Clemson in the ACC title game. I only care that I think Notre Dame is better than Cincinnati. Like, what Cincinnati didn't lose. Ask the teams that they lost to. That is my problem with this. I do not trust human beings. To pick the best teams is why this sport is driving me. It has driven me crazy for my entire life. And when I go back and I look through the way that they decided national champions back in the day, I flip tables. Toledo goes 35 and 0. They're the USC of their time. They never finished higher than seventh in an AP poll because human beings can be idiots. Like I just don't see it. They had one of the greatest college football players of his time in Chuck Ealy. Like we literally get a marker there. The man didn't lose. And yet we're not even saying he played for a national championship. What America do you live in? I live in this one where you get an opportunity where, you know, equality is is a thing. Hello. Why are we treating the whack as if it doesn't matter? Well, that's FCS. Why are we treating the mountain West as if it doesn't matter? Right? Why are we treating the American as if, oh, yeah, prop it up to whatever SEC school that we think is good? No, no. I refuse to live in a world where I acknowledge 5,500 kids aren't good enough to play for the ultimate. I refuse to do it. Sorry for coming at you like that, Cam. It's not about you, it's about the seven bids. So I apologize if you feel a little attacked. I did not mean to attack you. I meant to attack the seven bits. Uh producer cat, you can see the I'm I'm a little fiery about this stuff. Really curious what you think about this one. So this is from at illogical three. Six. The top two seeds get a buy. Then the number one plays the lowest ranked team while the number two plays the highest ranked team. I'm sorry, is that six? Get out of my face. Get it, get, get 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 out of six. Six? yo, man, okay, so you're saying, you're not even saying the power five all get in and then we do a group of five. You're just saying the top six teams. Again, all right, this is what I think we are dealing with. And I and I hear this from a number of national media members now that I am among them. We want to feel important. We want to feel as if we're deciding who should live and who should die. No. We are purveyors of the sport. We are observers of the sport. We are fans of the sport. I refuse to acknowledge an oligarchy that chooses who wins and who doesn't. I hate that so much. I hate it so much because I'm a group of five school. Okay? It's not just that I went to the University of Tulsa. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. I am here talking with you because I got lucky And I busted my behind. And when I got lucky, people acknowledge, hey, he's also busting his behind. Let's see if he can do this. And I got opportunities to succeed, I got opportunities to win. And I guarantee you, if I screwed up or do screw up any of those opportunities, somebody is going to come down on me and tell me that I'm a group of five school. I didn't come up traditionally, I didn't have five stars coming out of high school. I screwed up life, right? I went to TU. I went to OU. I thought I was going to get a job in sports media. I got fired from that job in sports media. I went to Oklahoma State to try to pursue a PhD in English. I got on step mill and I started talking about my sooners. That was four years ago. I can only imagine for you how it would feel For a kid at San Jose State, for a kid at Ball State, for a kid at Kent State to have a chance to win a national championship. And you're going to try to look at me and tell me he's not good enough or you expect him to get beat down. Let him give him that chance. Six teams is not going to give him that chance. It's why I want a bigger bracket. I want something that gets everybody in that should be in. And then you can have your six at large bids and then you can have your seating. I cannot get behind six. I can't get behind eight. I can barely get behind 12. Like I told Joel that I would shut up if they got to 12. And now I'm kind of rethinking that even. Because you'll find a way to leave the Mountain West out, to leave the Mac out. You'll find a way to leave the American out. No, no. There is nothing wrong with playing football to decide who wins a national championship in football. My god, it is the only sport in which we do not have an actual playoff. We have selections. So uh producer cat do we do we want me to go on about my thing or we want to save it? Let's hear a little. Okay. Let the people hear it. So, I want 16 teams in a playoff. I want 16 teams in a playoff. Okay. I want 16 teams in a playoff because A, we start with hey, 16 teams make the playoff in the NBA, 16 teams make the playoff in Major League Baseball, 16 teams make the playoffs in the NHL, and 14 teams in 2021 are going to make the playoffs in the NFL, right? And since math is easy, That is 62 teams out of a possible 124 teams that make the playoff every single year in the North American sports. That is a floor of 43% of teams and a ceiling of 53% of teams with a perfect average, I kid you not, of half those teams making the playoffs. Nobody's mad about it at all. I'm asking for 16 teams out of 130. All right? Just 16 out of 130. 16 is also, I think, a nice compromise because the FCS does 24, right? And they got fewer teams than the 130 FBS teams. So the other part about this is how does it work? Yes, I think if you have a conference, you play a conference title game, your conference champion should get an automatic bid to the playoffs. Seating, we can talk about. We'll, we'll let the suits and the oligarchy decide who they want to be where, right? I don't trust them to get that right, but I'll let it go because then they're in the playoff and they get an opportunity. And it'll be like, hey, this thing called the NCAA tournament, which is a months long extravaganza with 64 teams in. And yeah, it took some years for a 16 to be the one, but it happened. And guess what? We all remember it. And it was a lot of fun. Like, that's the other part about this. The people caping against sixteen, hate fun. We should let everybody in. It's going to cheap in the regular season. All right, dog. Let me let me let me let me let me get you up to speed here. Let's talk about Nick Saban, Alabama. Nick Saban's won seven national championships, six at Alabama since two thousand nine. Let me read for you some of the teams that they played during the regular season since two thousand nine. Chattanooga. I'm waiting. Okay. You know, okay. Kent State. That Golden Flashes, they, they great. They awesome. Western Kentucky. Directional Kentucky. Directional Carolina. Western Carolina. New Mexico State. Shout out to my buddy, Caden, who makes the joke that you could just skip out on New Mexico State because he's from New Mexico. Charleston Southern. What? Mercer? And the Citadel, that's just since 2009. And oh, by the way, they have played Chattanooga and Western Carolina three times each since 2009. I refuse to let you lie to me and tell me you care about those games Alabama's playing. I refuse to do it. All right, RG, you're going to make the season longer and you're going to get the kids in, in health, uh, excuse me, in, into further health, not trouble. Let's say... Uh, They're susceptible to more injuries. You know what? You're right. Why don't you financially compensate them for the risk? Ta-da! But even before that, let's just say the NCAA made its bed in 2006 when they allowed for 12 regular season games because, yeah, they need the money. Okay. So what I'm proposing is adding four games onto that schedule, which gets us to 16. There are now 17 NFL regular season games. Hey, RG, those guys are pros. So are the kids in college. You just don't want to talk about them that way. All right? And if you ask a kid if he would like to play four more games of football, you know what they're going to say? Yes. Do you know why I know they're going to say yes? Because they opted in to play during the plague year. They don't care. They're here to play football. They know the risk. Their families know the risk. I was having this conversation just yesterday. And it was, yo, man, my kid's playing football. Why is he playing football? Because we sacrificed everything for him to play football because he has sacrificed everything to play football. Yes, we are playing during the pandemic. We're going to take that risk. Well, you know that only the top 2% playing the NFL, and we expect to be among the 2%. We cannot operate any other way. We have to see this all the way out and then see what we have left. So there's that. And then there's also the NCAA adding us to 12 regular season games means that after 2006, the national champion had to play at least 14. And then when they went to the college football playoff, you got to play 15. So I'm essentially asking you to play one more game to win a national championship. Why are you trying to turn me into a crazy person? Because I swear to you, I am being rational. I don't understand why someone would be so irrational as to argue against the thing they claim to love, which is playing football. We're in the off-season. It's June. This is the time when I make my money because guess what? I'm manufacturing stuff to talk about because we ain't got no football on. If we had more football on, guess what I would love to talk about? Football. I talk a ton about recruiting during the off-season. And then come the season, people are like, yo, Archie, give me the recruiting news. No! We're playing football games now because that's what recruiting is about. It's about playing Oh, man, why are you arguing against more football? Who are you? I don't think you're a football fan. I really don't. I think you're a person that likes to talk about football. You know, it's kind of like the NBA people that only want to talk about free agency. They don't want to actually talk about the games because games don't really matter to them. They're already talking about who's going to get traded to where and who's going to sign for a max contract at what. No. Do you care about the sport? Do you like watching dudes do stuff that you know you cannot do, or are you envious? Are you playing NCAA and doing the roster management thing? Yeah, I do it too, because it's a lot of fun. But you know what I'm going to be doing on Saturdays, on Tuesdays, on Thursdays, on Fridays? I'm going to be the degenerate watching Kent State play Akron. Because I love football. And I love the dudes that play football. And I want the world for the 11,000 kids that play FBS football each and every year. I know it ain't going to work for them. I know because the system does not allow for it to work for them, but I'm going to do my damnest to make sure they squeeze every ounce out of this experience because of what they have sacrificed to get it. Those are my kids. Those are my teams. This is my sport. And I love them so much. Why don't you? All right. That. Is going to do it for this episode, 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 episode of the number one race show. My thanks to producer Cat Catherine Donnelly. She's awesome. J. Beyond Duncan, our social manager, who is just cranking out these graphics, man, and they look amazing. Producer Chris Cheshire is awesome. I keep trying not to call him Cheshire Cat, but I did it anyway. Executive producer of the show is Kristen Scott and you. I'm having a ball. You could tell I'm passionate about this stuff. I really love what I do, and I'm grateful to have this team around it. We're doing so well. Like, we're getting this close to 100 ratings on Apple, and I really want to get to 100 ratings on Apple before media days. And then yeah, next week, get to have a really cool in-depth conversation with Matt Linert. So be sure to tune in for that. All right. That is it for us. Doses.